You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. We're two friends who met while studying in Russia. We like talking about books so much we made it into a podcast. And this podcast is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? And this is an episode long time coming. Yes, through many, many months of me being bad at coordinating, we are finally very happy and honored, really, to have Philip Metris here to discuss his translation of Ochre and Rust, New Selected Poems by Sergei Gunlevsky. Philip is a poet, scholar, translator, essayist, and peacebuilder. He is the author of 12 books, including Fugitive Slash Refuge, 2024, Ochre and Rust, New Selected Poems of Sergei Gunlevsky, 2023, Shrapnel Maps, 2020, The Sound of Listening, Poetry as Refuge and Resistance, 2018, and Sand Opera, 2015. His work has garnered fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Landon Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ohio Arts Council, and the Watson Foundation. He has been awarded the Adrian Rich Award, three Arab American Book Awards, the Cleveland Arts Prize, and the Hunt Prize. Metris has been called one of the most essential poets of our time, whose work is beautiful, powerful, magnetically original. He is Professor of English and Director of the Peace, Justice, and Human Rights Program at John Carroll University. He is also core faculty at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining you, so thank you for having me, yeah. I also want to point out that Philip uh, gave us like a little note in the books, which is not usually what happens, and I just want to say thank you for that again, because it's, just, it's a nice touch. It's great. It was, it was a fun little surprise to open that up and be like, wow, this is awesome. This is great. Well, as you know, uh, poetry sometimes needs a personal touch, so mm. that's what we're about here, yeah. So I'm curious, uh, because I know for a fact that there are people in our audience who might be hearing about Sergei Gunlevsky for the first time. I was kind of wondering just real broad strokes if you might be able to kind of lay out for us where he fits in the cultural canon of Russian poetry, sort of who, who is Sergei Gunlevsky for the uninitiated? Oh, sure. So Sergei Gunlevsky was born in 1952. So he was part of the post-Stalin uh, generation and grew up, you know, when he was a, a youth in the 70s and 80s, um, a time that was called the stagnation period. This was a period just after the thaw when there was this huge sort of flourishing of um, a momentary flourishing of sort of free speech and arts again in the 60s. People like uh, Yevtyshenko and, and Ahmadulina and Voznesiansky, they, they were declaiming, they, they had these poetry readings in which they were declaiming to thousands, right? This is the stereotype of, of that thought period, right? Um, Gonlevsky came right after that. So after all of that, that momentary sort of possibility, this opening that was happening uh, crashed because there were um, some political events that happened. There was suddenly, again, dissidents being jailed there was the you know invasions of uh, Czechoslovakia and 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 elsewhere, and so people stopped believing that 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 there was a kind of liberalism that was possible. So Gonlevsky emerges at a moment of great cynicism, I think, in the culture and a sense of of the failure of the Soviet project. 
he himself was born into a family that was really interesting. Um, a, a father who was an engine, engineer and Jewish, um, and a mother who came from a, a family that had a, a patriarch um, from the from the Russian Church. So Gonlevsky famously says says, uh, or at least he said to me, and he's famous to me that you know. <laughs> In, in you know in Russia I was a Jew, but in, everywhere else I was a Russian. You know, and and because you know it was through his father's side um, that his uh, Jewish background is. Um, so he's sort of an outsider everywhere, and I think that mm-hmm. that self characterization is is totally classic for writers, but it's all, also very typical of him and his relationship to his own society. He was definitely passionate about and interested in a kind of uh, writing that was opting out of society. So, so many of his generation of artists were not necessarily dissidents, but they were outsiders. They were inter-emigres. They were opting out. He was a bohemian. Um, he did all these wacky jobs. You know, he was a night watchman. He went to, uh, he worked on like trains and things like that. He was, you know, our equivalent of a sort of beat poet. It basically said the society is broken. I am not going to give my, my honor to it. I'm going to be sort of a bum. (laughs) (laughs) And so, although he had these incredible aspirations to a kind of nobility of poetry in life, he opted for you know, being opting out and not getting any of the potential goodies that one might get being in the society. So that's kind of the historical moment in which his his writing and a personage kind of emerge. I think at one point in your introduction, you described him as a, a vodka infused bohemian or something along these lines. And I thought <laughs> this is this is going to be a great this is going to be a great selection of poems. I can't wait. <laughs> Sounds right up my alley. His drinking was uh, prodigious. And in fact, um, even when I met him and we did some reading tours in the States, he, he would say, you know, like, I'm, I'm not drinking anymore. I've finally quit. But sort of halfway through, things would <laughs> take a turn. Um, and I say that with, with all due respect for his great sense of discipline, but also mm. the, the wildness that is part of his work and um, the duality that, that's mm. really embedded in his whole uh, oeuvre, you know, like, um, so I'll just give you one little anecdote about his prodigious drinking. He was supposed to be reading at a, at a special festival event and um, he wasn't there quite on time. And he finally shows up and someone was asking him, I think it was like five o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, uh, Sergey, you know, where, where have you been? And, and he said, uh, well, we, we were drinking in, on, until three he goes three o'clock in the morning. You know, he goes no, just three o'clock p.m. <laughs> that's sort of like the world in which he existed, he's a sort of superhuman, a man who uh, subsisted on on vodka basically for a while. That's interesting. That's funny. What's that? What's that's that awesome. old uh, comedian joke of like I'm an expert at quitting smoking. I've quit like a thousand times. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, well, talking about Genlevsky, you know, for uh, a lot of people who may not be familiar, we wanted to ask if you have a personal favorite or a poem that you think might be good to share if you're able to read it uh, and then kind of talk about what what's so striking about the poetry, what draws you to it, and what might draw other people to it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, one of the interesting features of a lot of Russian poetry, particularly lyric mm-hmm. poems, is that they don't have titles, and Gonlevsky follows in that tradition. So this is a poem that doesn't have a title, but the first line, which is what we often know poems by in Russian, is, it's time to change the record, but I'm dreaming again. Um, and... 
just in advance, one of the things that really drew me to Gonlewski was his ability to capture something of ordinary life. A lot of times we think of poetry as about, you know, love or, um, you know, the, the ups and downs of the human heart. And it certainly is all of that. But one of the things that drew me instantly to him was this clarity of vision about ordinary life. And when I was living in Russia 30 years ago, back in 92 and 93, one of the things that I often did was take trains, the electric train, the Krichka, the, the metro in Moscow, constantly on public transportation. And you find a certain kind of ecosystem of life in public transportation that he captures it um, in this poem. So... It's time to change the record, but I'm dreaming of the motherland. Bored, shouldering past crowds at the station, I wait for the train since I intend to grow some apples or gooseberries. September's leaving. I dream that I'm just dreaming of crossing a wide country to nail some important scrap of board to a shed. Perspective of dreams is a dream within a dream within a dream. I smoke, squat down in a potato patch, burn off time. And over the muddy road, I head home from my small dacha plot toward the train's plaintive cry. But damn, no matches, and it's bad luck to go back. So I knock at random doors along the way, matches. And a strange old woman leans through a low frame and blinks and mumbles as if she were to blame that the weather's bad and there's no smooth roads, that Saturday at the club, the guys came to blows that I wander the halls of the world like a fool, an unlit cigarette in this hard autumn wind, as if she were to blame for this and that and for the rest, for the troubles of the motherland. I like that one too. Oh, thanks. I guess it's a different experience. As I was going through, I was reading these out loud to myself. It's a different experience to hear them being read by someone else. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And, you know, I've, I've been subsisting on these poems for quite some time. So they're kind of in my blood a little bit. And um, the rhythms are, are really apparent once you mm. hear something aloud, too, mm. which is, I think, one of the things I learned about poetry from Russian poetry, that the poem is only alive when it's heard, really. Um, so I really wanted to capture something of the music of the original. Of course, it's a different music, but hopefully it's an analogous music to that original. The other thing that was really important for me in this poem was this figure of the woman, which is a recurrent um, kind of motif in Gonlewski's work, his sense of having disappointed his mother on some mm. level, <laughs> and also the way in which that's related to a, a greater concept of, of, of the motherland, you know, Rodinamat, you know, this, this sense of this place that... Um, that he has somehow failed on some level. And uh, having seen so many old women in Russia, you know, sweeping out metros and, and doing all manner of really, really difficult uh, labor, um, that, that kind of image of a woman who's kind of suffering a little bit and um, just seemed so, so, so symbolic of something that I saw almost every day when I lived there. I like this sort of like listless wandering figure. I don't know. It feels like it would encapsulate what it would have, uh, you know, in some sense felt like felt like growing up. And I mean, it just it seems like it wouldn't have been a super fulfilling time to be growing up at a time that is then dubbed stagnation. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> there's a sense that time isn't money, actually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's just time, and you're burning it. You're burning mm -hmm. off time. 
Yeah, which is mm-hmm. such an interesting phrase that comes out in here. But you mentioned the the music of the poem, and this is something that I grapple with a lot, even on this podcast, like we kind of talked about a little bit before we got going, that we haven't really had a lot of success talking about a lot of poetry on the podcast, and part of that is because it's just, it's very difficult to discuss poetry in translation. Uh, and I think doubly so for Russian, or I guess that's what I can speak to because that's the other really language that I know. So that's where I can speak from some authority on what can be lost or, you know, what is this sort of incapturable quality about it. And I'm kind of curious how you grapple with that as a translator, because I know based on reading your introduction that you're very aware of this. And so I'm kind of curious if there were any changes or shifts in the way as you've kind of, you know, grown and, you know, sat with these poems for, uh, you know, a while, because this is your second book on Gondolevsky. So, you know, how have you started to approach maybe some of this translation in a little bit uh, different of a way than maybe when you had first started or were first thinking about it? Yeah, totally, Matt. Um, I think what initially attracted me to the poems was that sense of a vision um, and a personage of someone who had sort of opted out of a society and yet um, because of that outsider position was able to see it all the more clearly. That vision, that sense of humor, but also tragic um, observation, tragic conscience uh, really attracted me. Um, also the sort of bohemian rebelliousness um, as well. But as I started translating the work, I became more and more aware of the fact that, 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 that his poems, and in fact, almost every Russian poet that I can think of, uh, brings together a vision with a sound, with a kind of incredible music that um, that makes everything make sense. And that's a weird thing. Sometimes you'll read a poem in translation, and you'll think, I don't understand how it's getting from point A to point B to point Z. But when it's all in this music, it all kind of comes together, you know, the, with rhyme, with meter, with uh, with sonic connections. So as a translator, I felt a particular duty at first to translate the kind of vision of the work, um, the vision of the poem as it was unfolding, the images, right, the particular language. Um, but as I kind of have moved through, I've become more and more attracted to to the to the concept of of the sonic analogy um the music how can we kind of create a parallel music which might mean at points to slightly diverge from the literal into something that kind of is closer to to the music um so you know, there's a lot of different ways that happens in a, in a period of translation. Um, for one thing, like I really wanted to, particularly with the second book, is revisit some of the translations I had done and try to become a little bit more regular in terms of my metrical choices, in terms of like uh, amplifying some of the rhyme. I became less afraid of rhyme. For any of the listeners who might be aware of American poetry, rhyme was pretty out of fashion for quite a while. There are some poets now who rhyme pretty well, and certainly if you love hip hop, you 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 love rhyme. But it was very out of fashion. So translating it at first, I wanted to avoid obvious rhymes and and things like that. But I've I've become sort of fascinated by rhyme again. I've fallen back in love with it um, as a technique of 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 music and poetry. 
We kind of gotten a little bit deeper in talking about, you know, about why Genlevsky or, or about, I guess more so how Genlevsky, but I wanted to take it back a few steps. And, and you know, there's so many, we've talked about many poets from this era of, of uh, Russian, uh, I guess more so um, Soviet poetry, but I wanted to ask what drew you to Genlevsky specifically? Um, and then, you know, what kind of not only drew you to liking Genlevsky's poetry, but also to, to you know, to translating two volumes of it. For sure. So I very luckily and happily um, received a fellowship to study Russian poetry and its relationship to historical change back in 92. Um, it was from the Thomas Watson Foundation, which has this wonderful post-undergraduate program where you can spend a year on a particular project proposal. And I was really interested in Russian poetry. I was really interested in how poets are the sort of antennae or, or, or scribes of social change. And um, so I found a few connections here. There actually, I was doing some of my summer before I left at Northwestern, studying with a, um, a woman who was teaching in the, in the Russian program there, Tatiana Tulchinsky, and, um, you know, just doing some Russian classes, you know, just boning up on my Russian, which I studied in, in college. And she connected me with a translator and a writer named Sortsev, Dmitry Sortsev, um, whose work I've also translated. And he became my sort of my Virgil to to the Russian <laughs> inferno, such as it was in 1992, <laughs> um, where uh, he connected me to all these different poets. And so I interviewed a bunch of poets and we spent a lot of time together as he sort of trained me in translation. Um and of all of them, Gonlevsky, for some of the aforementioned reasons, sort of really rose in my estimation. Plus, he was he was very um, urbane and, and kind and generous. Like, he had me over to his house. I ended up going to his dacha. Um, he was just so cool. I, I don't know how <laughs> to explain it, but, you know, some of the poets I met were kind of older. You know, some of them were kind of maybe a little strange, you know, as, mm. as poets can be. But Gonlevsky was just like, to me, the coolest guy. And and, and the vision was something that I was utterly um, enchanted by, like enthralled by. So he he was he's kind of tall. He's he smokes. He has a dog, you know, a boxer. We're, we're walking back from the metro where, where he picked me up. Hmm. And we walk back and uh, he points out, he goes, oh, see that that monastery there? It was on the on the roof of that monastery where we used to drink. I mean, like, he would just <laughs> say stuff like all the time. And I was like, here I'm this kind of nerdy post undergraduate, you know, kid, 22 years old, just utterly enthralled by the kind of majesty and, and um, wildness of this guy. Was, <laughs> you know, probably around 40, I think, at that hmm. point. And so, you know, it just captivated me. And the, and the poems were just so rich. They were so kind of full and packed with illusions and, and wildness and, and, and classical beauty all at the same time. So um, there are many other poets that I got passionate about at that time that were from the contemporary scene. And I've translated, you know, bits and pieces of them. And two others that I've, I've published books with, uh, Lev Rubinstein, who I feel very strongly about, um, and uh, Arseny Tarkovsky, the uh, father of Andrei Tarkovsky, the great filmmaker. I love those guys too, but Kanlevsky was like the one who announced himself as the one that I must <laughs> translate. That's awesome. So 
I'm just curious, this wasn't a prepared interview question, but what was it like being in Russia in 92? What a year to be to be there. It was the beginning of that Wild West period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was exciting on some level. Um, everything seemed possible, but it was also, for the older generation, really stressful and uh, panic-inducing. Lots of people lost their lives, their, their saving life savings overnight. The month I arrived, the the interest, um, the inflation rate went up. I think it was like it, it was like two thousand percent. I think that that first month or something. So the economy was entering into a very rocky period, and that really impacted people's psychology. Um, the desperation was definitely a part of the the social, um, social psychological um environments that i found myself in it was an incredible year and i will never in some ways it was the most important year of my life and i'll never forget it and i'm sure that you probably had similar types of experiences living there um it's not a friendly place for travelers um and and then it was even less friendly there were imagine this right uh you know you know, this big boulevard, lots of, you know, uh, stores and stuff on it now, probably cafes and nearby restaurants. In Moscow downtown in 1992, there was not a single cafe, you know, there would have been like a stalovaya where you could have gotten some like bad soup. There was McDonald's. <laughs> there were maybe a couple really high end restaurants. And that was it. Oh, a Pizza Hut opened, which was a whole the wall. You could get pizza. So it was a, a place that was really unfriendly to travelers and to just like being comfortable in public space, which I think is a, a feature of Soviet life. Um, and so that was really hard, like as, as a traveler. I literally, I would go downtown and I would try to do stuff and I would literally spend an hour every few days at mcdonald's because at least i knew it was going to be warm in there and i could you know spend some time writing so a wild place to live at that period for sure it's great now because i have the touch screen so you can put it in english so when you're tired from living in a different language all day you can just go thank thank you mcdonald's (laughs) (laughs) yeah and in fact at that period i mean talk about like the, the the centrality of a of a cultural uh, an icon, the, uh, the ruble, mm. um, was sort of tagged to the price of a Big Mac. It was always mm. a dollar. And so whatever okay. the, the Big Mac was, that's how you, how much you knew that the, the ruble was worth relative to the dollar. <laughs> that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree. It, it, so this to me I, is one of the reasons I liked the poems that we read. He used the word duality earlier. And I kind of thought that that was a good way on how I would describe what it was also like living in Russia. I mean, it wasn't 1992, but it still had that same kind of sense where, yeah, there were definitely uh, aspects of it that were kind of cold and brutal, but then, you know, you're walking through just a random market that you're stumbling upon and it's all these old ladies trying to sell their honey and they're like, oh, you're American. You have to try my honey. Okay. So now I'm trying like eight (laughs) different kinds of honey everyone's everyone's very interested in what i think about their country they're like on the edge of their seats waiting for what i have to say it was it was very interesting so there's a sort of you know like uh 
warmth that permeates a lot of the people, but then the sort of I don't know how to describe the <laughs> that that other end of it is uh, not so warm. I, I'm interested that, that that you had that experience of warmth because I never I, I don't think I did. Once you cracked someone, uh, mm. you know, they're they're I don't know. Someone described it as like coconut cultures. Um, they're really hard on the outside, but once you get a, a way in with someone, they'll give you anything. And that yeah. is a kind of a coconut culture in that sense. <laughs> um, but I'm glad to hear that you had some like moments of real connection because once you get, once you become friendly with a Russian, like you're friends for life, you know? Sure. Yeah. 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 That it's was like, my experience. Well, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that my experience, like Russians were friendlier to us than they were to other Russians. Like we with, you know, Matt and I would be together and we'd be with like, a, you know, a Russian person that immediately immediately to be very friendly, like, hey, you should do these things. And then someone else would come along and they'd almost like give them a death stare is like, they got a weird vibe. <laughs> <and> I'm sure <laughs> to talk. Like, it was it was always very interesting. But to kind of transition to the next next question, it's, it's funny that you mentioned we've talked about being in 1992. I remember we talked to one teacher who was very fond of Americans. And she told us that she believed Americans, Russians are the most alike people in the world because she only met Americans one of the time in 1992 in Yaroslavl of all places when they, when some Americans came through and they met and they spent all night drinking whiskey. And she said they could keep up shot for shot. And that's why I know Americans, Russians are the most alike people <laughs> in the world. So many questions about that. Why were they in Yaroslavl in 1992? But that's beside the point. Um, and you know, we, Matt and I experienced that these, like we talked about this duality, but that I also, made, by the way, no, I'm just I was, kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was but I don't remember <laughs> there's probably a picture of you up on the wall we just you know didn't realize <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not impossible I don't think there are that many Americans in, <laughs> there in 1992 I think um, that that did help for us we were in places that people were like why are you here like it just would you know it can kind of jar them for sure <laughs> so you know it's kind of on that on that trend in your introduction to Okra and Rust uh, you talk about what many people get wrong about Russia, about really Eastern Europe and the whole, maybe even Central Asia, is that people are obsessed with misery, suffering, uh, suffering, death. I mean, that's like the classic association with, you know, you know, Russian authors, right? Um, and I kind of want to, like, how do you, I mean, I, I guess there's a lot of ways to go with that. This, how do you think this has become so dominant? And also, it kind of seems like Genlevsky resists this, this interpretation. In some ways, like, it engages with it. It's but it also is resistant to it. It's a much more lived experience. It's bohemian. It's outside. It's in it. It's of it. It's many things. Totally. You know, the Russia has such a fascinating self-concept. Um, it's almost as if Russians grow up with a sense that their culture is impenetrable to others. And so there's mm. a certain measure of pride in the mystery of Russian culture for Russians. So it's a self-identification, partly. But there's also the lens, the prism through which we view other cultures. We meaning we Americans, right? Mm -hmm. We're constantly viewing other cultures through stereotypical lens, whether we're looking at the Middle East, you know, with Orientalism or Islamophobia or, you know, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. There's or, or racism or whatever, whatever. Um, that being said, um, you know, Russians are um, do have a cultural capacity for philosophical and existential thinking and existential wondering, which is so deeply attractive. I mean, it's part of the culture in a way that it's not for us. You know, the Americans tend to be much more utilitarian, practical. Um, uh, in some of that, it, you know, around sort of Calvinistic Protestantism is like feeling evasive and um, individualistic 
And uh, Russians are almost, they offer almost a kind of binary to us in a sense, like there's, they're more collectivistic, they're more interested in the mystical, the irrational, um, they uh, love to philosophically muse. Um, although there's a hard materialism to Russian culture, particularly now, I mean, it's, it's definitely a capitalist country. Um, there, there are enough things that certainly drew me in and, um, you know, um, that I think are still typical of, mm. of, of a certain kind of Russianness. These things always change. Like whenever we think we've essentially captured a culture, it shifts. And so I want to be very careful about not sort of, relying on my, you know, impressions over the years um, to to sort of overdetermine what is a deeply complex culture and set of cultures, actually. Um, that being said, you know, one of my favorite memes, which I've happily shared, is that one that's four quadrants, right? And it's uh, one is uh, the American, I will die for freedom, right? And the the uh, French is, I will die for love. And then you have Dostoevsky. I forgot the other one. The, right. Dostoevsky is like, I will die. That just sort of captures something of the kind of primordial nature of <laughs> what Russian literature seems to be interested in, hmm. which is like those ultimate things. And, um, and facing them somehow. I found there was a, there could be a link on that sort of self-deprecating humor. I find that that translates well across couple different cultures. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. And so for Ganlevsky, I think that he uh, he draws upon some of those kind of cultural inheritances, but he's also playing with them in all sorts of ways. He is not, in some ways, I think my first read through of him was that he was more of a romantic than I think he ultimately is. He's, he's, he's definitely ironic um, and he employs lots of these uh, tropes in, in fashions that show a little bit of distance, you know? Um, so he sort of has one foot in both of those territories, the, the sort of total Dostoevskyan embrace of, you know, the gloom and the mire and the misery and the suffering. And then this other foot, which is in a kind of quicksilver um, skepticism of that, that same modality and a kind of also a kind of joyfulness, which I think mm. really appears in the music of the poems. Mm. And um, so that's the thing that we don't get off, often as Americans is that, uh, that other sense, you know, of course we have all these other stereotypes of Russians, but, that's a kind of classic stereotype, the, yeah. the Dostoevsky and sort of romantic <laughs> type. That's interesting. Sorry, Matt, if you don't mind if I, I break in here and uh, break off your question for a second, because I wanted to follow up on that just briefly, because there's a, a line in the introduction that really caught me, especially because I, <clears throat> I went through and I read some poems before I went and read the introduction, and it brought something to life for me that I, I think I've been looking at but hadn't quite grasped, which is that you write that anyone who's uh, familiar with the Russian canon will notice that, you know, uh, that Gunlevsky makes allusions, but it's not quite, you know, as you write, it does not politely invoke the great writers, but rather brings them alive to wrestle with their incomplete legacy. And uh, I kind of was kind of curious if you could expand on that, because that really caught my attention in talking about, especially when he makes those allusions. And what is it? I think it's, I think it's something at the garage and, you know, this coffin being bought, brought forth like Prince Andre on the field of Austerlitz. It's, it, as soon as you said that, I, I couldn't stop noticing it. Totally. I guess I read that. It makes me want to just read a couple lines. Please. Yeah, so I think that great writers do not simply rely on sort of symbolic illusions, but they they sort of circle back to questions that writers maybe haven't fully 
addressed. Um, certainly Tolstoy is a, is a longstanding um, companion in, in the wrestle of literature, the dialogue of literature um, for, for, for Gondolevsky for a number of different reasons. One of which I think is that um, Tolstoy, certainly in the latter part of his career, his, his writing life, um, really embraced an idea of a, a faith that I think that Gonlevsky is haunted by and can't quite accede to. So, um, yeah, so that one, I, I'm going to read a couple lines from, from that poem and, uh, and then, and then another one that comes out later on. So mm-hmm. that, that poem long ago, we wandered in on the festival of death, pressing our chest pressing to our chest the aquarium of the things of sorrow. It's fairy tale scary to be at a burial concert reflected in a brass trumpet as an upside down crowd. In March 1960, behind some garages, Jora drilled us on sexology and the science of curses. The audience thrilled. Suddenly above the floors, music kicked up. Something was carried in a coffin. Like Prince Andre on the Austerlitz battlefield, I raised my face to the courtyard's rectangle of heaven. Blackbirds, three clouds, gray faces, old women howled as the little kids giggled. Childhood in March, the union of sparrow and willow, the meager courage of music, the senile din, hats off, eyes down, only the sky knows no sorrow. Old organ grinder, coerce the horse organ. There's that famous scene, right, in War and mm. Peace, uh, right, Prince Andre on the battlefield of Austerlitz, in which he kind of sees everything, sees sort of all of life. Um, and I, he's totally employing this ironically, you know, almost <laughs> parodically. Like, he is not like Prince Andre on the battlefield of Austerlitz. He's at a, like a, you know, a funeral, a burial concert. Um, but like so many Russians, he sees himself in the kind of living myth that Tolstoy has created. I mean, that's what Tolstoy was so good at. He was like the totalist. He was the one who was like God, who could sort of see everyone and see into their hearts. And with a, you know one gesture could sort of describe anybody. Um, Gonlevsky's world is very different than that. And um, it's much less grand and majestic. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Um, and yet... You know, he, he he wants to throw it in because he wants to make it maybe slightly more grand than it actually is. Hmm. Um, I'm, I, let me stop there before I read the other one, because I know yeah. that you all have, have, you know, gone through War and Peace and stuff like that. Like, how did like how did it strike you and, you know, that that moment in Tolstoy? Well, it's so the reason why it caught me so much is that it's so funny because, like, I think, you know, forget I, if I've if I've mistaken this is the wrong battle, I uh, I apologize. But that's when uh, you know Andre. That's when he he's fallen on the battlefield. He sees Napoleon, and he's like, finally, this is the culmination of everything he wants. But as he's staring at Napoleon, all he can stare up is like this endless sky and all this meaning. And so it's this very grand moment of like coming to a realization about things. And you know, we're focused on this similar sort of thing. Is like there's these people around you know, the the narrator here, but also looking up at the sky, but instead of this grand, you know, realization of the importance of things more than just like these obsessions in Napoleon, it's looking up at a couple birds, three clouds, some old people, right? It's like this sort of very funny, ironic, like, this should be a moment of revelation, but it's really not. It's just like, 
it's kind of an empty sky, <laughs> like everything else around them. this feeling of importance up against the reality that it's just kind <laughs> of, I don't want to say it's just another day, but it, it kind of is. It's a moment which is sticking out clearly in this narrator's mind, but it's not sticking out, I don't know, maybe not because of grand revelation, but rather because of this, the lack of revelation, this childhood in March, this union of Sparrow and Willow, this time in between, you know, the similar thing with with Andre where he's staring at that. I think I think it's a willow tree that he stares at, sees through several times, sees it either as like a dying tree or, you know, young yet to grow out, all these these illusions which are, are much less grand, but also because of their banality almost in a way, like they have the same sort of importance that at least for me, when I look back at my childhood, I don't remember important things. I remember these small random memories, which nonetheless kind of take on this import is, is where I kind of walked away from that. Yeah, I would, uh, yeah, just tend to agree in general i find tolstoy kind of uh I, I love him as a stylist and i love to read him but i don't always find him you know the most convincing in a lot of ways it's almost like you know reading an oxymoron in, in some <laughs> senses where his whole sort of you like you said you know the god tolstoy that seeks to almost you know annihilate by detail uh it just he can't he can't uh it doesn't work when he tries to grasp what is what is infinite or what is what else can be there and so i'm endlessly intrigued by other writers who approach this sort of hyper detailization uh, in a similar way but that sort of it, to me i always kind of think of it as sort of striving towards the infinite with detail i, I am so obsessed with writers that do this <laughs> so this is why i enjoyed a lot of these poems this is why my my uh favorite writers tend to be people where other people find them just dense boring uh you know things like that i you know not to be just contrarian i actually do <laughs> you know tend to find it meaningful in a sort of different way in a challenging way but it's you know different and so that's why i i really i, I like this strain of questioning cameron and uh sort of wrestling with what it means to tackle these sort of incomplete questions is Totally. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, Gonlewski's commitment to ordinary life um, proceeds and sort of subsumes the transcendental questions about death, you know, life and death mm -hmm. and the, the infinite. And so his, his commitment is to the imminent, you know, like mm -hmm. rather than transcendental. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean that he's, you know, like, I'm not trying to secretly say that his theology is, you know, God is in, you know, the ordinary things. I, I don't even know if he goes that far. I think he's more of a skeptic and agnostic than that. Um, but those questions live with him and mm. perturb him. Um, but his commitment to you know, that, that kind of thick description of the ordinary is, is absolutely central. And it's a different kind of thick description than Tolstoy, mm -hmm. who wants to sort of always penetrate or always, you know, you know, dimensionalize into the infinite. Um, you know, there's a late poem on page 96, where he references Tolstoy again directly. Mm -hmm. Um, in it's a moment when his mother is passing away. His mother is like a figure of such great steadiness and fidelity and loyalty in his life. And, and in a, in a sense, a, a kind of figure, uh, a reminder of his own failures. Um, so apparently in Tolstoy, there's a line, um, that he quotes at the beginning of this. He's the old prince is dying and calls for Andre. Uh, this phrase of Tolstoy torments me these days. 
but why? We're, ne we're neither dukes nor counts, and yet the contours resemble my late mother's death. A morning like any other, sun shining. Get Sasha and Sergei, call Mark, my darling. She wailed in agony's thrall, died soon after. I'd like to question the transcendent author. What drives him to mount these wars on his own art, to batter our hearts, break beloveds apart? Either he means something, his words abandoned, or he has no control over what's happened. And so the author here, the transcendent author, is both Tolstoy and God, you know, mm. so sort of conflated them for the same reason that, you know, that we all might, you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny talking about uh, Ganlievsky's focus on like, not just the, the simple, the banal everyday life and conflating these two, these grand, grand themes, you know, of, of previous authors in the canon of, of life of God. Uh, but also, like, there are moments where I look in, in these poems, I'm like, oh, that's me. There's a poem, check out the city slicker in nature. I read that and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> that's that's when I go camping a couple times a year. I don't, really, I don't even know what these trees are. I just like, wow, this is nice, uh, you know, and, you know, and conflating these kind of everyday rhymes with that. It was, yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, beyond there's many great directions to go with Genlievsky, but <laughs> recognizing oneself in that it happened more than I thought it was going to reading this collection. That's awesome. I love that line too. Check out the city slicker in nature. <laughs> he takes a week of unpaid leave, plays Pasternak in the parsnip patch, and waits at last for total peace. Uh, in Russian, Pasternachit. He like hmm. makes Pasternak's name into a verb, which is so cool. <laughs> I think an original version I had was Pasternak's in a parsnip patch, but I wanted a little bit more of hmm. the, the rhythm there. So that's super I cool. Love <laughs> I, I don't know. This is one of the things that I just love about poetry and other languages, just learning about the different ways that poets will play, you know, with their their language. I'm not really sure what audience exists for for learning about that, but uh, I hope our audience at least finds this stuff interesting because I I, I don't know. I, I loved being able to do that when I was learning Russian. It was felt so great when you finally could, you know, sort of deduce your own verbs or or words that kind of could make sense in context and it just gave me such a greater appreciation when reading for just the creativity that exists within the language that is i was saying to cameron before this just it, you know it exists in english it's just different and it's not better or worse it's just different and it's it's hard to do to really describe without seeing it i i suppose if i would you know make a make a judgment i would say that russian is a it's a richer language than, mm. than english um richer and in its sort of profusion of, of of words um but also in the ways in which the the language itself is so flexible syntactically um the way that you can make almost anything into a verb as you say and things like that um i mean english is obviously a language a lingua franca for the world uh, because of american power but i think it's also like it's such a weirdly sturdily um practical language utilitarian <laughs> um do, do you think that's why we've kind of thrown off and you know the constraints of of meter of rhyme of everything and just jumped into free verse so much earlier do you think that's uh, you know what about russian poetry you know, allows it to sort of retain these classical elements because even nowadays, plenty of poets still write in you know tr traditional meter. It's not weird. It's I mean, maybe probably even you know more common. But it you know in English, it 
it, it it's almost I feel like you know if somebody's still writing in in some uh, more traditional forms I guess it would be like you know they're really trying to to work with it in a new way whereas in Russian maybe not exactly I don't know if that question makes sense but uh, <laughs> oh, it to totally does um, you know one of the things about English is that it you know came from Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Saxon had its own kind of repository of rhythmic structures and tricks usually around alliterative verse hmm. which meant it wasn't a kind of counting of syllables as much as it was um or counting of uh, metrical feet but more like syllabic counts and and use of uh, highly alliterative kinds of structures so the language um isn't like russian or Arabic for that matter, which um, which has a kind of flexibility of syntax. You can sort of move things around the way that we used to in English a lot more. Like if you mm -hmm. look back at Shakespeare and all those inversions of syntax, we, we, we tend to think those are just so artificial now that we would mm -hmm. never do them. Um, so English has its own tradition in relationship to to you know, what we, what we might call quantitative verse, that is to say, like, very regular meter. So for those of you who aren't really up on this stuff, you know, like, you know, whose woods these are, I think I know his house is in the village, though he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow, that kind of really regular beat that Frost mm -hmm. might have in a poem like Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. That kind of Frost was one of the last ones in the modern period who would have been employing that um, Frost and Hausman and a couple others. You have to go all the way. I mean, there, you know, of course there are people throughout who are writing in verse, but um, the the sort of the growing edge or the sort of most elevated writers were not ones writing a traditional verse in English. Um, there's been some moments of return in our culture and tradition um folks like Gwendolyn Brooks and then the kind of new formalists who came around in the 80s and were writing uh, atavistically really saying like this is what poetry should be like we're going to go back to that because that's the kind of thing that people really like people like rhyme you know people actually <laughs> do like meter it's memorable um, the Russian situation is so weird I mean relative to world poetry other than perhaps Arabic, um, you know, all European poetry like moved on from mm. metrical verse with modernism. That is to say, early 20th century kind of moved on. Um, the Russians kept <laughs> their beautiful music, orchestral music, as it is in, po in poetry. Um, and Gonlevsky may be the last generation that, that for whom it was expected you know, I think right now we have the first generation, like literally right now in the 21st century, you know, 20 years in, 23 years in, where people are doing more, you know, very Lieber, free verse type things. Um, but it's such a, it's such an older um, kind of outlook. I asked Gonlevsky this question, he called it patriarchal, but in that sense of kind of traditional um, I think that the fact of the Soviet Union may have slowed down the sort of quote unquote capitalist innovations of, of, of literature mm -hmm. um, may have, I'm not 
100% sure that's the case, but may have. But I think what, what's, what's retained is um, something that we've kind of lost, um, except it's kind of returned in oral poetry, like hip hop and, and song lyrics and things like that. Um, so I think that there are gifts that both traditions provide, but it, it definitely makes it harder to translate because then you're trying to sort of bring two things together and need a lot of um, very flexible um, approaches. I just thought that was interesting when you were, you know, talking about initially trying to avoid rhyme or, you know, super direct rhyme. And it just, as a sort of technical feature of translation, I always, that, that always makes me think that, wow, I would not be good at this because <laughs> just the amount of considerations that go into how do I translate something that's, you know, so beautiful in its original language uh, and try to maintain that beauty in a completely different language where there's not only just, you know, not even just the formal set of rules of translation, but then, oh, well, we don't do this like this anymore. This is not how poetry, you know, works now, which of course you would know writing your own poetry. So that's why I value getting kind of, you know, your insight on that. I find it very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of really powerful writers right now writing what we would call verse, you know, like in mm -hmm. metrical forms and with rhyme. But, um, but when I started doing this, there were fewer, certainly. And um, sure, sure. yeah, I mean, you know, poetry is like this weird thing. It's just such a such a niche cultural um, activity that you can basically find anybody doing anything at any time. And, and the idea that somehow there's like a totally dominant force is maybe just less necessary than it is mm -hmm. in politics or business or something. Sure. I know we're kind of getting towards the end of, of some of the questions we wanted to ask you. We kind of wanted to, to finish off on uh, sort of a question from another, from the, from the other book that you sent us, The Kindred Orphanhood, which we, unfortunately, there's so much to talk about. We didn't have as much time to get to that one, uh, which is another poetry collection of Gunlevsky you mentioned. Uh, you, there are a few references to his poetry operating in a sort of anti-imperial mode of sorts. Um, and as we're kind of talking about, you know, the Soviet uh, the Soviet era that Gunlevsky is writing in for a lot of this, although of course not all Gunlevsky is still uh, <clears throat> continues writing on after this uh, to today. You know how does how does Gunlevsky navigate the periphery of, of Soviet Empire in his poetry? Well, I think first as a traveler, and like many writers before him, he was a restless person who um, found you know the power centers to be suffocating in certain ways and you know you you know that pushkin you know traveled all over the place and and some of these folks were exiled so they actually got to see like dostoevsky and many others were were exiled to siberia um so gonlevsky as a sort of roving you know desiring hungering um bohemian wanted to escape you know life in in the capital and found himself um, in all sorts of far reaches. And you can see all sorts of references to the, the, the periphery of the Soviet uh, empire, um, places that I had no idea, like, you know, what, what, is, what is this, uh, you know, Elushta? Where is Elushta? <laughs> I don't know, where is Elushta? So I, I kept having to look things up on maps because he was constantly mm. referring to them. In a way, you know, I suppose the, the, the least charitable way you can talk about these is sort of exoticism like i'm mm. gonna 
throw a lustre in this poem. I'm going to throw um, some, you know, the Black Sea, or I'm going to throw something in that's it's going to be non um, non Moscow centric. Um, but I think that there's also a um, a desire constantly to militate against the idea of centralization of um, the power center of sort of observing the periphery and um, you sort of being in peripheral spaces, not mm. being in spaces of power. Um, and just, just as a kind of literal kind of autobiographical parallel to that, Gonleski now is living in Tbilisi in, mm. in the Republic of Georgia, uh, precisely because he and his family felt vulnerable um, after the the invasion in Ukraine, um, that he didn't want to be separated from his his son and his daughter. His son has got you know family, uh, his own little family, and so they all just relocated um, to the periphery. Hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of demonstrates something of his you know his ethic. You know he's not a dissident in any kind of classical sense. But he is someone who is a writer of conscience, who does not, um, as, you know, assent to uh, being used as uh, a plaything of power. Um, and just like another anecdote on that uh, level, he won a, a fairly big prize. Um, you know, probably would have been about thirty or forty thousand dollars of today's money. But the uh, the guy who was putting up the money had some kind of conditions. They wanted him to do this or that, the other thing. And he's like, I'm nobody's monkey. You know, like he refused the money, mm. even though he absolutely could have used the money. He did not want mm. to be anybody's plaything, a plaything of power. Mm. Um, and I totally respect that. And so although he's not, you know, on the front lines, you know, uh, leading charges, his his dignity is intact in terms mm. of what he feels is um, ethically uh, a right in the situation. So life is complex, and, and one of the things that I recognized as I was, you know, translating this and thinking about the Ukraine situation is that I remember I had the opportunity to go to Ukraine when I was in um, Russia, but it was they they required a a separate visa and i thought like this is this is too complicated like why why are they making me but of course they they required a separate visa because they felt that they were their own place and me being this arrogant guy who had totally drunk the uh the russian kool-aid thought oh ukraine it's just the borderlands you know it's like what's so special about that and so i didn't i i did not know and understand the history mm -hmm. of like holodomor and and the mm -hmm. sort of things that um what a minority country would have faced vis-a-vis -vis mm. Russia. And so there's always in Russian literature um, a kind of imperial temperament, mm. which is part of being uh, part of, you know, a country as big as one sixth of the world as the Soviet Union was at the same time that Russians inside of that tradition mm. sometimes are able to see the limits mm. of that kind of uh, expansionist um, imperial kind of idea and to, to really notice and observe um, the world and its complexity and, and to try not to fit everything into a kind of Russianness. I think it probably you had a similar experience as you've sort of developed the podcast in terms of mm -hmm. thinking 
its name and and the role that you can play in terms of um, the wider cultural question of Slavic and Eastern European um, literature and culture. Um, the last thing I would just say about all of that is um, that Tol I got so obsessed with Tolstoy at some point and um, read just about everything that he did. He has a very late book called Haji Morat, mm -hmm. which is about um, this warrior from um, one of the Caucasus uh, tribes. I can't remember which one now, uh, Caucasus uh, peoples. And uh, it's a very powerful, simple and powerful book in which he totally ascribes a kind of dignity to a person who probably 20 years before when he was writing or, you know, most people in the society would believe is a terrorist, you know? Mm -hmm. And he says, no, this is a, this is a person who's coming from a culture and has a kind of dignity that, um, an approach to life, which I want to understand and want to write into. Mm -hmm. And that's the book Haji Murat. So, um, I'm always interested in those moments when a culture can sort of overcome its own ideas of its own centrality and sort of really see what else is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I think Gonlevsky at moments kind of has that kind of humility and um, opens us up to sort of thinking outside of what's the typical. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I know we're trying to wrap up, but yeah, as you're saying that, it, it can't help but think about, you know, Pushkin, the captain's daughter, you know, a piece I've never been able to stop thinking about ever since I read it. But exactly what you're saying, that there are many authors who so interestingly write, often from a place of power, both Tolstoy, Pushkin, um, and less so Ganlevsky, obviously, who are able to engage with, like, the peripheries and per people on the periphery of, like, you know, and the captain's daughter almost romanticizing, you know, our our. our not a false Demetri, but you know our, you know the leader of the rebellion, and 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 the same for Haji Murad. It's so interesting to see that almost being overcome in many ways, but also the kind of uh, not I guess an inverse, but the corollary where we talk about writers like Gianlievsky, um, writers who uh, in in the modern era, some especially with with the I don't know, I don't I, I guess you could say there's definitely could say there's a polarization of politics, but even writers we've covered on this podcast who 20 years ago all would be considered maybe not dissident writers, but you know, uh, you know, Zakhar uh, Prilepin uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago to today, his position has changed drastically. So seeing, as you're talking about writers who maintain their dignity, I don't necessarily want to say Prilepin necessarily had dignity back in the day. That's a, that's not really, but like writers who are writing against the government and to today, where that's developed, where they've gone politically as, as artists um, is fascinating to watch. Yeah. So this has been interesting to talk about. I, I've been absolutely delighted by this conversation. In fact, like you, you actually said some things about the sort of like the, the use of Tolstoy that I had not totally, um, I'd sort of understood instinctively, but I hadn't, you know, I've not written a paper on it or anything. So it really kind of excited me to sort of get to another layer of thinking about the Gunlevsky stuff. So I hope that, um, hope you were as equally, um, you know, pleased by, by the sort of some of these discoveries. I, I was. I, this happens to me all the time in the podcast. I don't always come in with fully formed thoughts, and sometimes I'm just kind of finding it as I go along, and it's always really fun. Well, Philip, thank you so much for being here today. Usually when we, we finish up, we just ask, is there anything you think people should look forward to coming out that you're working on? Anything to look forward to on your end? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would be thrilled <laughs> if people, you know, got a copy of this book, Ochre and Rust. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have a book of my own poems coming out next year, but you know, this being a Slavic podcast, I think let's let's keep our focus on uh, <laughs> this stuff. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's some marvels in this book, and some, you know, even if people don't like poems, there are some poems in here that you will you'll you'll be 
pleased by. Um, uh, here's just a very short one. Like at yes. this certain end of his life, he did a little bit more of a hip hoppy type uh, structure, and and I, I wanted to try to get as close as that. And this is there's a sort of goodbye in here, mm-hmm. which might be someone who's in a coffin. We don't know, but um, <laughs> it goes uh, under my breath. I mutter a swear and head down the stair to the chubby girl on the ascent. I wink and sway like a bear. No doubt in the descent, something weighs on the mind like cement. Why drink without a thing to eat? That's what makes a Russian complete. The sun hides beneath the mist. Spot chases after his missus. An old lady scolds her granddaughter. Wave bye to the nice man, dear. (laughs) (laughs) you got to hear this one in russian it's it's really funny it's really funny i would say for for anyone that's on the fence concerned i'm not going to get the illusions i'm not going to get what it's all about this was so helpful the notes section in the back even for myself i would consider myself fairly well versed maybe more than the average person in russian poetry it's not my particular area of expertise but there were so many things that i was totally going to overlook and was absolutely going to to miss without this. So that was critically helpful. I supremely dislike getting books with no commentary. I very much want commentary. <laughs> cool, cool. Very much a shout out to my friend, Dmitry Shortsev, who, um, who really helped uh, walk me through some of that kind of back end illusions that I, you know, hadn't discovered yet. So it's there's just so much it's such a, a rich and you know dense really tradition so it's super super helpful for sure all right thanks awesome. you too awesome philip thank you so much for being here today absolutely and before we let you go we just want to let you know that next week we're going to be releasing our first full technically episode on Vasily grossman's life and fate which will be covering part one chapters one through 31 so if you aren't already part of our chapter a day read along really easy these are not long chapters you can go to our website sign up for our listserv on there, we'll be sending you an email every morning with an analysis of that chapter. We'll be having discussions on it and in our social media and on Discord. Uh, and then each night, we'll be recording a podcast, as you've probably seen, recapping what people had to say that day. And it's been a lot of fun so far. So we highly encourage you to sign up if you have the time. It's really not a huge commitment. But to help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all the research that went into this episode, you can head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. Before we let you go, we wanted to extend... Before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters, Juliana, Diane, Oleg, John, Timex, Melissa, Baron, Vaughn, Aldo, Ben, Gabe, George, Claire, Amy, Allie, Soraya, Jackson, Molly, Emma, Mike, Marianne, Mickey, Eric, Mike, Peter, Eric, Ben, Claire, Jeff, Inez, Mai, Robert, Joseph, Daniel, Lou, Nina, Gary, Janice, Mary, Anne, Isaac, Amanda, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pac Rob. The music used in this episode, as always, is Starayakino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.